Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to begin with a P.S. at the beginning. I know it's weird, but just take note of the reading from 1 Corinthians and all the wonderful things St. Paul says about the Corinthians and file that away, put that in your back pocket for next Sunday. Now, you're preaching. I don't know what you're going to say. I don't either. Yeah, uh, so it'll be a surprise. But just know what Paul, whether you preach on Corinthians or not, what Paul says this Sunday and then what he says next Sunday, it's illustrative of the human condition, which is something I want to talk about today, this contradiction that we find if you start reading the Bible. You'll notice that it seems to say two um, things about humans that creates something of a paradox. As you begin in the book of Genesis, you'll see that when God creates people, God calls them very good. And it says that people are made in the image of God. And then by the time you get to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah will tell us the human heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it, which is another way of saying that you are God's beloved child, worthy of love and belonging and you can never remember what side of your own car the gas tank is on. (laughs) It means that people are given these hearts that can love fearlessly and fiercely with the capacity for stunning acts of kindness, and you also know the precise word to say and the tone that will, for the person you live with, do what Brian Adams, the Canadian rocker, says, cut like a knife. You can do both those things. Uh, You can be a devoted parent who is also an addict. If you know the, uh, the group Pedro the Lion, which is a singer named David Barzan, who was a Christian and then not, and I don't know where he is now on that, but he talks about singing a lullaby to his baby daughter in her crib, and he can smell the whiskey on his own breath. This is the kind of thing that uh, people are really good at doing, Uh, what I call a doubleness, a doubleness about people. Uh, The difference between how your front porch looks and your garage. Uh, In the 1998 film, The Last Days of Disco, written and directed by Whit Stillman, uh, Chris Eigeman, who you might know if you're a Gilmore Girls fan, he has a brief arc sort of in the middle of that series. Chris Eigeman plays a guy named Dez who is a bouncer, sort of this preppy guy in the early 1980s. He's a bouncer at a very hot club in New York City. Uh, sort of a Studio 54 place in the end of those days. And uh, near the end of the film, the owner of the club has gotten in some trouble. This character could be a witness in the trial that's coming, but he doesn't want to get involved in that. He doesn't want any risk to come on him personally. So even though his girlfriend is in the hospital, it's a lot of setup, but I'm going somewhere. (laughs) He decides to flee the country. Girlfriend in the hospital... He could be a witness 
doing justice against a bad guy, but he goes to Spain. And as he's in the cab headed to JFK with his friend, he says, You know that Shakespearean admonition, to thine own self be true? It's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good, being true to which is commendable. But what if thine own self is not so good? What if it's pretty bad? And here is the thing. He is a creature made in the image of God, so much so that he knows what he's doing is not great. He is inherently aware that leaving his girlfriend in the hospital and allowing the bad guy to get away with it is not great. But he just can't seem in that moment to tell the cabbie to stop the car and turn around. So... What do we do about this doubleness? Where can we get some help? Well, if we fast um, uh, forward from the reading in Isaiah, which is God saying a servant is going to come who will bring some help, we find ourselves standing in the Gospel of John by the Jordan River, John chapter 1. And in that passage, we have this guy who's been coming up a lot in our readings lately, John the baptizer, and he has just baptized Jesus the day before, and John, who was a religious leader with several of his own followers as well, and he's standing there with two disciples, and twice in this passage, um, verse 29 and verse 35, John 1, it's confusing, John who wrote the Gospels, not John the baptizer we're talking about, but John the baptizer is standing there, and twice he sees Jesus walking by, and twice... John the baptizer says, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the name he uses for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't know if in your prayer life, if you talk to Jesus and you call him the Lamb of God, but those are the words that came out of John's mouth immediately. It was in the hymn that we sang, this idea of the Lamb of God is going to continue again. It was in the glory, all these things, the Lamb of God. Why a lamb? Why call Jesus an animal of any kind? Well, in that day and time, lamb of God meant something really specific. Today, it's just a metal band. Did you know this? It's a band called the Lamb of God. It's a metal band. I do not recommend. (laughs) But in those days, the lamb of God meant a sacrifice. I mean, a lamb is just a lamb, but when the lamb is God's, it's an animal that's destined for sacrifice. It's a sacrifice for sins. That's something that somehow removes from you the burdens that are too heavy for you to carry. And this is the thing. We double creatures. We are made, as I said, gloriously in God's image. The scripture says, just a little lower than the angel's. Uh, Yet we are often like Lady Macbeth. Remember her in the Scottish play? Um, She has uh, poisoned her husband. We've all been there. And she's, um, she's feeling remorse. And she's standing there at the kitchen sink. And she's trying to clean her hands. Her hands are perfectly clean. 
But to her, she, as she looks at them, they appear as if they are covered with blood. And she just says, out, damned spot. She's trying to get rid of this thing and she just can't do it. And so this, to me, reflects uh, reality for many people. That there is something that you carry that you just can't quite shake. This uh, unremovable stain. And there is this ancient understanding of how the universe works that was very present in Jesus' day, but is even still present in ours. And it's this idea of sacrifice, and it is mysterious, and I cannot explain the mechanics to you. I can't draw you a schematic of how it works. But what I can tell you is that the idea is somehow, when this sacrifice is made, the guilt that is on one being is transferred to another. And it sounds sort of magical and weird and maybe some fairy tale and you don't have to agree with me but that is the thinking that is going on here and it's thinking that I said still seems to have some traction today I give you guardians of the galaxy where Groot the little tree creature turns himself into this giant orb that surrounds all of his friends he ends up being obliterated and they all survive He is a sacrifice in some respect for them. And continuing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we all know about Iron Man slash Robert Downey Jr. and his sacrificial offering of himself so that everybody would would survive and he would take the hit. This is the idea. You can go back into Stephen King's oeuvre, his short story, The Green Mile, which was then made into a movie, and uh, you can see the character John Coffey. Have you ever noticed his initials? Not incidental by Mr. King. And John Coffey takes into his own body the physical and spiritual ailments of others. He is a sacrifice. This is the idea of the Lamb of God, this animal, this sacrificial animal that takes on the burdens of others and its life is given in exchange so that others may live. And this Calling Jesus the Lamb of God at the beginning of his ministry here is pointing us to the cross, this place where uh, in some spiritual and divine mystery, the idea is that Jesus takes the sin of the world. You just sang it in the Gloria, and you'll hear it in the Eucharist. And this is something, though, that we don't really, I think, often internalize deeply, us double human beings. But I invite you to give it a shot. Today, uh, you have an experience to do something that Andrew, the disciple in this passage, not that one, but also him, but in this passage, this Andrew, hears John call Jesus the Lamb of God. And he hears him do it twice. And so Andrew, with his friend, goes to spend time with Jesus. You you heard uh, Al read. They went up to Jesus and said, you know, where are you staying? And Jesus said, well, come find out. So they went, and it says they spent the day with him. And John, very weirdly, John, the writer of the gospel, tells us something that often or rarely ever happens in Scripture, which is he gives us the time. He says, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they spent the whole day with him. Now, if you go to somebody's house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 
and then you spend the whole day with them at that point, from that point on, what will you end up doing? You'll end up having a meal. And these disciples had a meal with the Lamb of God, which is exactly what we are going to do here and every Sunday. There's a table in every church where people are invited to have a meal with the Lamb of God. Because you've heard this thing that the billboards say, that Jesus died for your sins. You've heard that since summer camp as a kid or at some point in your life. But it seems very abstract. And what this is trying to do is to make very real and concrete that this is for you. Here is some actual bread that I will put in your hand. And here is a chalice that I will just thrust into your face, causing some of you great anxiety (laughs) because you're new to this whole Episcopalian thing. But this whole idea is as you taste the bread and as you drink the wine and as you kneel here with your siblings as humans, as Christians, you are invited to be reminded that Jesus died for you, for your sins. For the spot that cannot be washed away, for whatever is in your metaphorical garage, not what's on your front porch, and that he has washed you in the waters of baptism and has made you clean and has risen to new and eternal life to give that life to you so that death is no longer something to fear. And he has given you the Holy Spirit to sustain you and to begin to actually transform you into a person who is, over time, by God's grace, maybe not quite as double as you once were. Because if you have been actually loved and forgiven, if someone has loved you enough to give himself for you, knowing all that is true about you, maybe you, as a double person, can begin to integrate a little bit, which means you begin to be honest about who you are. You begin to be the same person in every situation that you encounter. You begin to be able to tell people the things that you used to never tell anyone. You begin to be, instead of two people, one person, sinner and saint, loved by God. So on this second Sunday After the epiphany, we do not behold the Lamb of God who reminds the world that they need to get their act together. We do not behold the Lamb of God who's got some great tips on your finances and relationship skills. No. We behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even yours. Amen.